You got lots. Sweet. Is he good? Awesome. Hey, kids, thank you. Oh, wait. Hey, Malia. Malia, can you run this jar back to Shirley? Oh, well, hey, just hand that right there. Hey, David, we've got another usher. Where'd you? Awesome. Hey, Malia, can I have the jar back? <laughs> Somebody will grab that jar. That's fantastic. Uh, before, before I preach, I want to I pray a little bit. Um, hey, Heather, before you go, Heather, before you go, just wave. Okay? This is Heather Fisher. Okay? Totally putting her on the spot. Uh, Heather's been coming here for a few months now, maybe three, two, three months. Something like that. So when I pray, and I pray for Heather's uncle, that's who I'm praying for. Okay? Fair enough. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's pray before we begin this morning. Lord God, we want to be a grateful people. Uh, we want to be a thankful people. And in this week of Thanksgiving, our hearts are drawn towards that. We want to thank you, Lord, for your love. We want to thank you for your care and for your concern. Uh, God, we want to thank you this morning for a warm house of worship. Uh, May we be warmth to our neighbors in very real and tangible ways. Uh, Lord God, we thank you that you are an unchanging God with unchanging love for us. We thank you for your mystery, God, and for your grace. And this morning, Lord, we want to give you glory. We want to see your kingdom come, and we want to see a generation that seeks you. We want to be that generation, Lord. This morning we come before you with some, uh, with some needs and concerns uh, from our own family of faith. Lord, we think of Heather and her uncle. God, her uncle had a stroke, uh, you know this, uh, several weeks ago, and is struggling. So we, we lay him before you. Uh, God, may you give the doctors wisdom. Uh, may you give the caretakers wisdom as to how to best care for him. And God, as a family of faith, we want to bring him before you and ask for a miracle. We want to ask for a healing that would surprise the family and the doctors and everybody that would be around. And Lord, when that takes place, we will give you glory. And if you choose to heal in a different way, we'll praise you for that as well. God, we think of Bessie and her family this weekend. God, we think of Lowell and and his family, of Bonnie and and the the Bonners Ferry family. Lord, we think of the Hamiltons. God, they are dear to our heart. We think of the churches that each of these people represent, Lord, as, as uh, families of faith, they grieve with these families who have lost loved ones. But in each case, we celebrate, God, with, uh, with them because these ones are with you, and we're grateful for that. God, our world today needs you. We think just in the last couple of weeks of the events that took place in Beirut and Paris and, and the Syrian refugees, God, wherever we stand on that, these are your people. And we want to make sure that, God, that somehow the Christian church can bring power and life and, uh, and freedom to those who, who are uh, involved in all of these. God, we, we pray for those here in Spokane who are still without, uh, without literal power. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we could be and provide that warmth to them. 
I got to thank you for ways in which we already have, and I pray for opportunities to do that even in this next week as, uh, as power is still being uh, restored. God, this morning I think too of, of Jim Mace and, uh, and the grieving that he's, that he's go, uh, going through. Um, God, he lost a couple of former students, or lost one former student in a car wreck yesterday, and another one is in, uh, is in critical condition. So, Lord, we, we pray for him and Becky as they grieve, but also, Lord, for the families of those young ladies who are experiencing uh, a Sunday morning that they would not have anticipated. God, let us offer hope to a world that needs you. We want to be that hope by pointing them towards Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to be your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning we won't have any slides because there was no power, which was fantastic for me because I didn't have to uh, find slides, but less so fantastic to you because you're going to have to listen to me instead of look at the pictures. We're going to try and keep it interesting this morning. Um, I have discovered by experience the single worst outreach method the church has ever invented. I've experienced the single worst outreach method the church has ever experienced okay, or invented. It's not invite your neighbor to church week. Okay? It's not street corner evangelism. It wasn't even the crusades. Those were bad. Okay? But I've, I've experienced worse. Church league softball. That is how, well, your husband came to be a Christian through that and because your dad wanted him in church in order to date you. So it was, (laughs) it was some of each. So church league softball converted Mike Crouch, nobody else. Why? Because, oh, it's terrible. The watching world. The non-believing Christians that we invite to be on our church league teams, these people get to see Christians at their worst. They're good. Second that, we're going to have a couple of amens at least in the introduction here, okay? People are cussing. They're yelling at the umpires. They're cheating. Except it's not cheating if you don't get caught, right? Huh. All this takes place by the end of inning two. And then he got the rest of the game. Years ago, while I was playing a church league softball, I saw things, heard things, experienced things that would make any a non-believer sit there, scratch their head and say, why in the world would I want to be a part of that people? When not only are they no different than the rest of us, they claim to be better, but they're not. Amen? I think that when Jesus returns... He's going to have a conversation with whoever thought it was good to have church league softball. Our actions in the church and within our immediate families are being watched. And the doctrine that we preach must be seen before it will be heard. Thank you, Miss Marlene. You can say amen a little bit louder, because I'm going to say that again, and maybe a few more people will say it. The doctrine that we preach must be seen before it will be heard. Amen. 
This morning we continue our look at the letter Titus. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus while on the island of Crete. Last week we saw how Paul told Titus, refute the opposition. Refute those who are teaching wrong doctrine. We looked at a few of the potential wrong doctrines that they were teaching, and we looked at what Paul's heart was in that refutation. Ultimately, he wanted those who were opposing, who were teaching the opposition, he wanted them to have sound doctrine. He wanted them to be strong in the faith. He wanted them to be reconverted. That was his heart. Now, believe it or not, when Paul originally wrote this letter to Titus, he didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers crazy, huh? It was just a letter. So the transition between chapter 1, our chapter 1, and chapter 2 was really seamless. At the end of chapter 1, Paul says, correct those insubordinate empty talkers, those people who are promoting wrong doctrine. And the beginning of what we see is chapter 2, Paul says, but for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, if I were sitting, I would be on the edge of my seat because I want to hear what Paul is going to tell Titus. I want to hear what he says, Titus, this is sound doctrine. And I'm I'm attentive. I'm fully expecting a, a theological manifesto, a doctrinal dissertation of sound, wholesome teaching. So let's see what Paul writes to the young man, Titus. This is Titus chapter 2. As for you, Titus... Promote the kind of teaching that reflects wholesome teaching. Or excuse me, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely, be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. Verse 6, In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching cannot be criticized. Then those who oppose you, those who oppose us, will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 9, slaves must obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. Verse 12, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this world, in this evil world, with wisdom righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to the wonderful day when the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. 
You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. Titus chapter 2. Did you hear the theological manifesto? Did you hear the lofty church-worded doctrinal dissertation? Ah, Neither did I. Honestly, the closest I saw to doctrine was verses 11 to 14. But most of the chapters seem to be a lesson in how to act. How to act around your family and your church family. Now, how to act. Why would Paul have that emphasis in a section that we clearly subtitle, Teach Sound Doctrine? Well, I think it's because Paul knew that on the island of Crete, the doctrine that was preached must be seen before it was heard. Paul knew that the outside world was watching, so he chose to instruct Titus, to instruct the elders to teach and live in a way that would not have turned away the non-believing Christians on this island. Now, I want you to note the order in this instruction. First, Paul talked to older men, then older women, then to younger women, then to younger men, and then to slaves in the household. This was the system that this fledgling Christian church was in. This was the culture that they were a part of. If Paul had come and turned the whole thing upside down, if he had thrown out gender and relational roles out the window, the outside watching world of the island of Crete would have said, what a bunch of crazy lunatics. These guys are just rebel rousers of some Jewish offset sect. We're not going to listen to them. So Paul did not turn those cultural roles upside down. Instead, Paul says, hey, Titus, teach order in the household. And that household could be the immediate family, which oftentimes had three or four generations living under the same roof, or it could have been the church family. Now, in either situation, you can see that Paul does not try and rearrange or demolish the already present cultural groupings. Thus, we see what we have here in chapter 2. So let's take a little deeper look. Paul begins by talking to older men. Now, this would have been the most revered group in that culture. They would have been older than 40. Raise your hand if you are men, if you are older than 40. Okay, so we have a couple of older men in the church. They would have been seen as having experienced life. Listen to what Paul says to this group. Paul says, Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. In some of your translations, it says Paul told these men to be sober and temperate. This literally is the opposite of having too much wine. Instead, Paul says, be men who exercise self-judgment, sound judgment in every area of your life. These men were to be dignified, serious, worthy of respect, more than just by age alone, but by lifestyle. This is a man who knows that God sees every move he makes. Now, Paul says these older men were to be prudent or self-controlled. We looked at this word a couple of weeks ago. Anybody remember it? If it was up there, it would say sophron, S-O-P-H-R-O-N. 
It means a person who keeps everything in their own life under control. My New Living Translation says it's a person who lives wisely. We're going to see this word again. Now, all three of these traits, they're traits that the, that the, uh, the watching world, the unbelieving Cretan world, would have admired. They're qualities that would have fit in well with the pagan society. So Paul starts there, and then he goes beyond. He says, and older men, make sure you live a life full of faith, love, and steadfastness, endurance. Now, in the great wedding chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul finishes with this. He says three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. Two of the three are in our list for older men. Now, it would be easy for us to get bogged down looking at definitions and understandings of each of the words in the rest of this chapter. I'm not going to get bogged down because if we did, we'd miss the main point, which you've heard me say multiple times. The gospel, the doctrine that we preach must be seen. So instead of looking at definitions, we're going to keep right on going. Paul addresses next older women. If you consider yourself an older woman, go ahead and raise your hand. I'm not going to give an age group on this. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. Here we begin to see Paul really driving home the need for our actions to point towards God. Live in a way that honors God. This could also be translated as being engaged in sacred things or being reverent in behavior. Now what we need to understand is in this culture, the role of older woman was a sacred role. Grandmas were respected. Now, honestly, I I haven't seen too much different today. I still see a lot of the older women being respected. I see senior ladies having doors opened for them. I see groceries getting carried to their cars. I even watch the occasional gangster movie. And I see the thugs still treating their grandmas with respect. So not much has changed. Grandmas still hold a place of reverence. But Paul says, older ladies, serve this role well. And here's how you do it. Here's how you live a life that will uh, honor God. Don't slander others and don't be a heavy drinker. All the ladies that raise their hand are thinking, yeah, I only got two things. Don't be a gossip and don't be a drunk. I can handle that. Kind of a short list, yes? Ah. We've already seen this. What Paul is doing is addressing what is common in the culture around Crete. Apparently, it was not uncommon in that culture for women to reach a certain age and then just sit around drinking their margaritas talking about other people. So Paul addresses it. He says, women, don't do that. Instead, what I want you to be, I want you to be a model of propriety and respect for all other people. And I want you to live similar to the men. Live sober. When you think about it, this list is not all that short. Because those things that he mentions affect a lot of areas of our lives. Plus, he adds at the end of that, teach others what is good. Not just teach, but live what is good. 
And I saw that and I had to wonder if that good was the same good that we talked about a couple of weeks ago when Paul was laying out character traits for an elder. And he said, be a lover of good. One commentator said that the older woman's list did not stop at just those two things. Don't be a gossip and don't be a drunk. He said that in the training and teaching of what is good, and in the training of teaching of the younger women, which is the list we're about to look at, the expectation would have been for the older women to be living this out. Their teaching was not in a classroom setting where they just said, you must live this way. Their teaching was a life example. So the verse continues. It says, teach the older women must train younger women. Now, Raise your hand if you consider yourself a younger woman. A younger woman. Again, not any age group. Okay? So we're talking to you now. This is what the older women were to be modeling to the younger women. Verse 4 and 5. Teach these that the older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely, to be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, to be submissive to their husbands. And then they will not bring shame on the word of God. Two things I'm going to point out in this portion of the letter. First, you see again Paul's heartbeat for this training. The end of verse 5. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. He continues to say, look, the watching world is watching. The doctrine we preach must be seen. Your actions will reflect your witness. How you act, older women and younger women, will determine if people outside the faith will join the faith. Now, The second thing I want to point out in this section is this. I realize that in today's culture, there's a lot of women who see a list like this and they cringe. Listen to it again. Love your husbands and your children. Okay, that's good. Okay? Live wisely. Be pure. Work in the homes. Do good. Be submissive to your husbands. Sounds a little old-fashioned, don't you think? Love having the Hoffmans in the front row. No, it doesn't. Submit, woman. I'm getting there, okay? I'm getting there. What we've got to understand is this. In the ancient Greek world, This is so far beyond us, we don't even understand it, okay? In the ancient Greek world, the woman woman lived a completely secluded life. In the house, she had her own quarters. She did not eat with the menfolk. She never went out in public by herself. She never attended any public assemblies or meetings. Her entire being was set in the home. So we must take Paul's instruction in that context. Remember, if Paul had told the women in that day, you need to go out and find your giftedness and your callings and your passions and you need to live into that. Find a job and work. Had he said that, again, the Cretan culture around him would have said, what a bunch of crazy lunatics. Because that culture would have known that the only work outside of the home that a woman could find was prostitution. So to have Christian women out on the streets would not have shed a good light on the new Christian church. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, all that into consideration. Paul's call here to young women is not a call to be squashed under male domination. Carly, say amen. Amen. Did you hear what I said? 
Okay. Paul's call to young women here is not a call to be squashed under male domination. And the little one says amen too, okay? Women, forgive the men. Men, oh, seek forgiveness. If you have used texts like this to turn it into freedom to oppress women in their lives, this is not what Paul is saying. Paul is simply saying, look, you new Christian women on the island of Crete, act in such a way that those around you who don't know Jesus won't be turned off by your faith. Live your witness in a way that others won't run from it. Now, I think that Paul realized, and he would have argued, that a homemaker is a huge and noble calling. Culturally, okay? This is great. It's been said that consecration is what makes drudgery divine. Okay? Consecration is what makes drudgery divine. And there is no greater place where consecration can be more necessarily and beautifully shown than within the four walls of a place we call home. The world can do without its committee meetings. It cannot do without its homes. So Paul, in a real sense, was elevating the young women and saying, continue to live your role well. One other thing to note on that list. The younger women and the older women, by example, were called to live self-controlled. We saw the older men called to live that way too. Be in control of yourself at all times, Paul says. So from. Now, next we get to Paul's instructions to young men. Everybody else, I asked them to. So young men, go ahead and raise your hand. Now here we know it's pretty much anybody under 40. Okay? Young men. Oh, you missed the cut. Sorry, man. (laughs) Young men. Verse 6. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. That's it. One thing. Encourage the young men to live wisely. To have self-control. There's that word again. Sophron. Let's be honest. Could anything have been more challenging for Paul to ask young men to do? This is like the hardest thing he could tell them. These are young men in the prime of their life. Okay, What he is telling them is, you can't go sow your royal oats. You can't go jump off of high bridges. You can't get lippy when your cousin mouths off to you. You can only ride your camel so fast. You must stay in control at all times. Whenever my boys ask me if they can do something that is just on the edge of dangerous, most often my response is, yeah, go ahead, but stay in control. Right? You've heard me say that? Every time you ride your bikes. <laughs> on the edge of dangerous. Wow. Perhaps I should change that to, go ahead, but stay sofron. <laughs> Live wisely. I'm not trying to minimize what Paul calls younger men to do. Okay? I'm not trying to say he's just calling them to do one thing. Most people think that as Paul continues and addresses Titus, he's also continuing to address the young men. So let's listen to what he says, verses 7 and 8. It says, And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. 
Teach the truth so that your teaching cannot be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. So Paul says, do good works. Have integrity. Let your teaching be serious. Let it be sound. Why? So that the people who are watching cannot have anything bad to say about you. So that the life you're seeking to demonstrate is lived in a way that draws others to Christ. Paul wanted nothing to detract from Christ and the salvation he offered to all people. That's why he instructed each of these age groups to act the way they did. The doctrine that he was preaching must be seen before it would be heard. Paul continues on, talking to slaves. Now, we've got to make sure that we're not offended today when we hear that term. Because the slaves, in reality, in that time, in that culture, was the norm. And slaves were oftentimes treated way better than we picture slaves being treated. In fact, I love what one commentator did. He said, you know what, the the slave word uh, gives us a bad connotation, so I'm going to change the word to workman. So for the laborer, the person who works for someone else, which a lot of those who are in a job market now is you guys, okay? Paul knew that the worker, the laborer, could possibly be the only Jesus that that boss, that master ever encountered. And that's why he said what he did in verse 9 and 10. Slaves must obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Now, if a common workman had a, sl- had a master that was a believer, there was, there was the potential that they may think, well, I'm part of the family of faith. Maybe there'll be less expectation on me. Maybe there'll be less discipline, maybe even less work. Paul says, don't think that. I want you to work hard. I want you not to talk back. I want you to work in a way that pleases them. Now, if their master was not a believer, again, he's saying, look, the only sermon your boss may ever hear is your life lived out in your daily job. The only sermon that boss may ever hear is your life lived out in that daily job. This is an easy one for us to bring into application today. If you have a Christian boss, oh, work your tail off. If you don't have a Christian boss, work your tail off. Why would Paul charge the slave, the workman, to act like this? The end of verse 10. Then then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. You see his heart? Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. Let your doctrine be seen in order for it to be heard. Paul finishes this portion of the letter with what I called earlier the most like a theological manifesto or a doctrinal dissertation. Listen to verse 11 to 14. It says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to the wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds 
and good works. Now, having read that again, perhaps you notice, as I do, that this is once again a call to certain actions, to ways to live. Turn from godless living. Turn from sinful pleasures. Live with wisdom. There's that word again, sophron. Live in righteousness. Be devoted to God. Now, no matter what your age group that you find yourself in, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, workmen, if you add these final requirements on to the other things listed earlier in the letter, all of a sudden, your list becomes a little more unattainable, don't you think? I mean, if you're an older man, listen to your requirements now. Exercise self-control, always. Live worthy of respect, always. Live wisely, always. Have faith, have love, have patience, turn from godless living, turn from sinful pleasure, live with wisdom. There it is again. Be righteous, be devoted to God. Do you got it, older men? You got that list? Go live that way, all the time. Feel the pressure? Overwhelming. Women, should I list off your list? I think you get the picture. Some serious pressure in this part of the letter. But there doesn't have to be. We don't have to feel the pressure. Why? Verse 11 starts like this. For the grace of God has appeared. Now the word appeared is the exact same word Paul uses in his letter to Timothy when he says, and now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Jesus Christ. In John 1 verse 14 and verse 17, it says Jesus came full of grace and truth. Now, the word appeared means epiphanied. Okay, so Jesus arrived and he came full of grace. So we don't have to feel the pressure because in Jesus there is grace and forgiveness for the times we fall short. But even more than that, Christ is present in us. He has appeared in us to help us learn to live the way Paul is laying out for us to live. Paul is laying out, he's saying, Jesus in us is the process of sanctification. It's the process of learning how to live a holy and righteous life. Grace instructs us. Grace helps us say no when we need to. And Jesus in us is the power of the incarnation. And the power of the incarnation is huge. One more thing. On top of the grace and Jesus' presence in us, the letter says Jesus has already won the battle. Verse 14. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin and to cleanse us. So in your list, if you're starting to think, I I fall short, guess what? Jesus has freed you. He's cleansed you. That's a good thing. These are theologically rich and deep and powerful words. One author writes that the moral power of the incarnation is a tremendous thought. Christ not only liberated us from the power and penalty of past sin, he can enable us to live the perfect life within this world of space and time. And he can so cleanse us that we become fit in this life to become the special possession of God himself. That's what it says at the end of verse 14. It says he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin and to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good words. Good works. 
To make us his own people, his own special possession. This is a very neat word. It is used, it means set apart and reserved for. And it's specifically used for the part of the spoils of battle that a king would set aside for himself. When the troops would come in, when they demolish the enemy, the king would come in and he'd say, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. It's set, it's set apart, it's for me. And this text is saying, because of what Jesus has done, we get to be the set apart for him. If we belong to God, if we have the incarnation of Christ in us, we don't need to feel the pressure because Christ will help us. And if we believe that, then our lives will become that sermon that we want people to see. All of this, verses 2 through 14, is what Paul tells Titus, here's your sound doctrine that you need to teach. Because verse 15, it says, you must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. The doctrine we preach must be seen before it will be heard. So how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, I am hopeful that you guys have already started to make some connections. I'm hopeful that as you've heard the list of your specific age group, you've thought to yourself, huh, okay, I could do some work here. I'm, I'm pretty good here. And I need the incarnational power of Christ to really transform this area of my life. And hopefully you've realized that the only way you're going to be able to live up to this list is through Christ in you. Now, in, in case you haven't made that connection, a, a simple story. It's the story of St. Francis. One day, St. Francis said to one of his young friars, he said, let's go down to the village and preach to the people. So they went. They stopped on their way and talked to this man and that. They begged some bread from this door and that. Francis stopped and he played with the children. He exchanged greetings with a passerby. And then they turned to go home. But Father, the young friar said, when do we get to preach? Preach, St. Francis said. Every step we took, every word we spoke, every action we did has been a sermon. There's your take-home point for the day. You want your doctrine to be sound? With Christ's help, make sure that every conversation you have, every gesture you make, every step you take is worthy of Christ. This probably means you can't play church league softball. Let's pray. God Almighty, we are grateful for lists like this. Because in a very real sense, we're a people that want to check something off. We want to be able to look and say, ah, I can do that. Oh, I can do that one, and God, I'm going to need your help on this. Lord God, I pray that you would help each of us to realize that none of this stuff can we do on our own strength. None of it can we do under our own power. We must have Christ living in us. And God, if we don't, may we make that choice today. Because we want to be a people, Lord, that allows our doctrine, our sermons to be seen before they are heard. 
Help us, Lord, as we go through this week, not only to be a thankful people, but to be a people who pays attention to what we say, to what we do, to how we interact with others. God, we want to we want to see what Paul says to Titus when he says preach sound doctrine. And we want people to look at our lives and see that. So help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before Tim starts to sing, if you're following